0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, though, we're stepping away from the news to bring you a few mind-stretching feature stories. Leonora Carrington was one of the most important artists in surrealism, but she made her own surreality, centered on women as domestic goddesses, sorceresses, witches. Our correspondent follows her adventurous path deep into Mexico to uncover what inspired her. And speaking of witchery, In Myanmar, there's a curious rise of wizards. They've always been a part of the Buddhist religion. After the country's transition from dictatorship, they're flourishing. You can even catch them on YouTube. First up, though,
1: A lot of people in Britain take pride in the idea that the country is not susceptible to extreme politics like fascism in the way that some of our European neighbours have been. But in fact, that's not a completely accurate picture. Andrew
0: Miller is The Economist's culture editor.
1: Not only did fascism have a brief moment of prominence in the 1930s when it was on the rise in other countries too, surprisingly, after the Second World War, the fascists made a bit of a comeback as well. After the war, cities, particularly bits of London, were bomb sites. Austerity was even tougher than it had been during the war, and bread was rationed after the fighting finished, and it never had been during the conflict. So it was quite sort of fertile territory for extreme politics. Anti-Semitism had a resurgence after the war too, in part because some people erroneously blamed Jews for it having happened in the first place, in part because they thought the refugees were taking housing that ought to be going to honest British servicemen, and in part because of events in Palestine where there was tension between Zionist paramilitaries and British forces who were there because of the British mandate. In the 1930s, there was a political party in Britain called the British Union of Fascists, which was led by Sir Oswald Mosley, who had been an MP for both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party before striking out on his own. But during the Second World War, he and other leading fascists and Nazi sympathizers were locked up to prevent them from aiding the enemy. Mosley himself got out in 1943 and others did subsequently. And when The fighting stopped and they were allowed to operate freely again. They began organising, publishing poisonous pamphlets, holding public meetings, particularly in Jewish neighbourhoods in the north and east of London. And eventually began to contest elections. They also met resistance. As a new book called We Fight Fascists by Daniel Sonnebend documents, a group was formed called the 43 Group, which largely comprised Jewish ex-servicemen. A lot of these guys had served their country, fought for their country, and as tends to be the case, they had a new sense of their rights and the respect to which they are entitled by their compatriots. And also, of course, having witnessed the horrors of Nazism in some cases been present at the liberation of concentration camps, they were disinclined to put up with the anti-Semitism that they encountered when they came home and discovered that, you know, their families, many of whom, of course, had lost relatives in the Holocaust, were in some cases scared to leave their houses because of the activities of fascists in their home country. And so these guys formed an organization designed to disrupt and dispel the activities of the fascists. The leader of the group was a guy called Jerry Flamberg, who was a former paratrooper who'd been shot and captured at Arnhem. But there are also some youngsters who'd been too young to fight in the Second World War who nevertheless got involved and I met some of these guys.
2: Really? Have you seen the book? I read I've I've read every page.
1: And you know, it was quite an interesting experience because here they are, amiable old timers at the same time, fairly quickly We're into stories of mass brawls and, you know, belt buckles being used as weapons.
2: I know that knuckle dusters were used, possibly by both sides. I would say that 80% of it was done by fists.
1: One of them, a very nice gentleman called Jules Konopinski, used to be called, in his teenage years, Mad Jules, apparently.
2: It's a great wonder that nobody got killed. We didn't particularly worry about where we hit them and, and how we hit them or what with. And if we didn't hit them, they would hit us.
1: Among his colleagues in the movement were you know, Vidal Sassoon, who subsequently went on, of course, to be a very famous hairdresser, who used to carry a pair of hairdresser's scissors as his weapon, and a very young Harold Pinter. The 43 group would say that violence was not their preference. They wanted these new fascist organisations to be banned and they petitioned the government to do that, but the Labour government at the time was reluctant to. Their tactics were to attend fascist meetings and they would ask the police, there would always be police there, to close the meetings down. The police would refuse, so they would... Heckle or throw things. When that didn't work, they would attempt to dislodge the speakers from their platforms. We talk about no platforming now in a kind of metaphorical sense in colleges and so on, but this was no platforming in an extremely literal sense. They would form a wedge of men which they would use to push through the lines of stewards guarding the fascist speakers and attempt to eject them from the box they were standing on and end the meeting that way when more civilized methods didn't work.
2: Harry Bidney, a little guy, very tiny, warrant officer in the army in Burma, one day he was attacked on his doorstep. There was a golden rule, you don't attack people on their doorsteps. You don't interfere with their family. They broke the rule and went on his doorstep. Certain people went down to Valens Road, where this guy lived, knocked on his door, went inside, remonstrated with him, and went as fast, taking the coal out of the fire, onto the floor, and laid him on top, and said, don't do this again. Dude, never, ever go to people's homes.
1: There were really quite astonishing levels of violence involved. There were razor blades being used, broken bottles, people being thrown through shop windows, enormous fights involving dozens of people. But as well as that, there was a kind of cloak and dagger battle being waged at the same time, whereby the 43 group ran an intelligence operation which involved inserting agents into the leading fascist organizations, one of whom eventually became Mosley's personal bodyguard. Another couple who infiltrated fascist organizations had to be kind of extricated and packed off to Canada in a a hurry because their lives were thought to be at risk. So it was a pretty elaborate organization of which violence was a part and an important part, but, you know, by no means the only part. This was a multidimensional conflict force between two parties with very different visions of what the future of the country should look like. My
2: parents' attitude was, keep out of it. It was always a policy that if they looked at you, don't make eye contact. If they hit you, turn your back and take the second blow, walk away. You found that the police did not do anything. They were allowed to run wild. And so therefore, we had to do what had to be done.
1: Because we weren't going to go voluntarily. At the time, it was controversial. Of course, many people were opposed to the violence at the time. Just as from the perspective of today, we might say that it was extreme and even unnecessary. And did fascism really have much of a chance of making inroads in mainstream British society? A few things to bear in mind. One is that this was a time with a very high kind of ambient level of violence in society, crime rocketed after the war and there was a lot of people who had emerged from the war scarred and traumatized for a lot of jewish people the trauma was particularly acute so whilst from the perspective of today we might think violence is never justified and extremism should be dealt with by the authorities it's also easy with a little bit of empathy to understand how people living at that time saw things differently We'll never know what would have happened if these people hadn't decided to organize and take matters into their own hands in the way that they did. I spoke to an expert on the far right in Britain, Jerry Gable, who runs a magazine called Searchlight that monitors extremism. and He thought that the 43 group was instrumental in driving fascists off the streets and preventing Mosley from making further inroads in the late 1940s. Of course, society was changing anyway. Gradually, the economy improved, the hardship abated, And the conditions that seemed to make extreme politics attractive to some people began to dissipate. So from today's perspective, we might think that the threat was never likely really to take off in any case, but in the end we'll never know. know, One thing I took from talking to members of the 43 group and reading and thinking about them is that some of the questions we wrestle with today about the limits of political speech are old. Now we have rows at university campuses across America and elsewhere about what sort of opinions are legitimate, where the lines should be drawn in terms of hate speech and incitement. And in some ways, it's reassuring to know that these are issues that people have been wrestling with for a long time, albeit in very different
0: circumstances. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, Trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com/slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.
3: Leonora Carrington was a British debutante, daughter of a very rich industrialist who broke away from her family and became first amused to some of the world's most famous surrealists and then a surrealist artist in her own right.
0: Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, our column on global business. He recently travelled to his old stomping grounds in Mexico to follow in the footsteps of the painter and author Leonora Carrington.
3: So Leonora was a young artist in London in the late 1930s when she met Max Ernst, who at that stage was one of the preeminent surrealists. And she moved with him to the horror of her family, to France. Where she hung out in cafes with the likes of Dalí, Picasso, she became a part of that incredible surrealist circle that was living in Paris literally as Germany was bearing down on France at the beginning of the war. So she and Max fled to the south of France where they lived this idyllic life in a farmhouse until he was arrested as an enemy alien during the war. And this precipitated a crisis in Leonora's life that led to her abandoning Max, fleeing to Spain, having a massive nervous breakdown and then finally marrying a Mexican diplomat who was able to whisk her away to New York and subsequently Mexico. She left the Surrealists behind in France and in New York and she moved to Mexico. And it was in Mexico where she found a group of like-minded women, also European emigres, fleeing war in Spain and elsewhere, that she developed her own talent as an artist and she started to create works... Of tremendous inspiration and works that have become really important within the surrealist movement, all produced in Mexico. Mexico is one of those countries where, if you visit it, you're always told that it's the country that André Breton called the surrealist country par excellence. And I've always kind of wanted to know what that meant. And I thought pursuing two surrealists in Mexico, because Leonora also had a tremendous friendship with another British aristocratic surrealist called Edward James, if I followed their trail, I might get to understand a bit more what André Breton was on about. So it started as an art pilgrimage. I went with a couple of friends and we were really determined to try and find out, firstly, what it was about Leonora's art that had made it so lasting and so important within the Surrealist movement. But more than that, we wanted to know what the connection was between her art and Mexico. It was A frustrating journey at times, simply because, at least when it comes to Leonora Carrington, Mexico doesn't seem to have yet worked out how to sell her well. It's really hard to find traces of her. So we went to her house, which is in the Colonia Roma in Mexico City. The first thing that I'd read was that her house was a museum. So I went to the supposed museum and knocked on the door and I get a very brusque response from a security guard inside the house saying, no, there's no museum here, it's all fake news, go away, (laughs) don't come back. And so that was how the journey started. One of the things that intrigued me about Leonora was to try and find the connection that she made with Mexico. And where it seemed to speak to her was in the extraordinary kind of colour that you find in the main squares, in the Zocalo in Mexico City. You go there and there are people dressed up in Aztec costumes, dancing, shaking bells. There's the smell of incense. There are organ grinders. I hate the organ grinders, but the noise is so penetrating. And I think this brought her back to some of the sort of mythical life that she'd read and been told about as a child, being brought up by an Irish nanny and Irish grandparents who would tell her a lot of these old Celtic stories. So I think there was a connection there. Sorry, there is a bit of a gossip columnist in me, and what I wanted to find out as much as anything else was the relationship between Leonora and Edward James, partly because they came from very similar backgrounds, both had very unhappy childhoods, and had both somehow found each other and found themselves in Mexico. But Edward... He didn't find himself in Mexico City as Leonora did. He actually went to a really remote area about 10 hours by car away from Mexico City and he built there in the Mexican jungle a sculpture garden, the most extraordinary collection of temples and sculptures and all sorts of weirdness that was very, very surreal. It is an arduous journey. You drive through the desert, you drive up mountains with very steep switchbacks, but you come into a world that I I call, and people call, Mexico profundo. This is deep Mexico. This is the sort of the old heart of Mexico, quite indigenous. There are these Jesuit missions there. The bells ring out loudly through the day. There was a lot of fighting between the missionaries and the indigenous Mexicans who'd lived there before the conquest. It takes you into a part of Mexico that's very deeply rooted in the past. The destination was Hilitla, this lovely cobbled town in the middle of Mexico, quite a scruffy town, but very atmospheric. This is where Edward James based himself for many years while he was in Mexico. There's a house just below the main square where he used to live. It has a beautiful painting on the wall by Leonora Carrington. It's almost like a self-portrait. It seems to show her there as sort of half-beast, half-woman, smoking a cigarette, her arm elegantly draped over the mantelpiece. It's there that Edward James has his sculpture garden. We were allowed to stay overnight in the jungle amidst the sculptures. Very early on in the morning, I went for a swim in one of the pools under a waterfall where Edward James had once said to Leonora that he wished he could give her a tab of acid to take so that she could experience it in all its glory. As an individual, Mexico spoke to something in Leonora that was really important. She was one of these people who was deeply in touch with the subterranean aspects of life. She was always meditating. She was really into Tibetan Buddhism. She was really into mind-expanding drugs. I think Mexico kind of allowed her to open up this part of herself. As regards Edward James's relationship with Leonora, I think I also had this suspicion that there was more to it than just the platonic relationship that people discuss. Actually, when I was in Hilitla, I talked to relatives of the family that was closest to Edward James. And they told me that they believed very strongly that Edward James actually at one stage proposed to Leonora Carrington. Sadly, I think that's rubbish. It seems quite clear that Edward James was gay and that their relationship was platonic, but it was still the most wonderful relationship. It was hilarious. He would go to Mexico City and he would take animals that he'd collected from all over Latin America and dump them in her house, often to the exasperation of her and her children. Armadillos, snakes and whatever. They were really an extraordinary couple, but they saw eye to eye, and one of Leonora's sons said to me that what James identified was Leonora's inner animal. When I heard that, it made my trip feel all very worthwhile.
0: Wizards have achieved cult status globally thanks to the works of J.K. Rowling and J.R.R. Tolkien. But in Myanmar, they're less associated with the mythical worlds of Hogwarts or Middle Earth and considered much more a part of everyday society. Wizards there are believed to acquire their so-called powers through Buddhist teachings and meditation.
4: Burmese wizards have always played an important role in uh, Myanmar culture and the Buddhist religion.
0: Charlotte McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent.
4: During the uh, dictatorship, they were marginalized. And with the transition to democracy, uh, there's been a flourishing of interest in wizards.
0: So what sorts of powers do do people believe that the wizards have?
4: They have a range of powers. So one of them is, is healing people. The other is restoring uh, your business to health, boosting profits, They can also repel attacks, so physical attacks and also black magic attacks. And the more powerful among them can even do alchemy um, or fly.
0: Have you seen any flying wizards in your time in Myanmar?
4: (laughs) Unfortunately not. You do see lots of shrines to them in pagodas around the country. And it is possible, of course, to to call up your your neighborhood wizard um, if you so choose. And so I did actually meet a few. They very kindly brought me into their homes and they, and they showed me their shrines to the particular great, powerful wizards that they follow. And, and these shrines are decorated with magical diagrams, candles, pictures of the wizards that they revere, that sort of thing.
0: The, these guys kind of fit neatly within, the, uh, within Buddhist doctrine. There, there's no immediate conflict there.
4: Uh, it's complicated. Technically, they are very much part of Buddhism. The, the greatest, most powerful wizards are actually of a greater status than, than Buddhist monks. And, you know, there's, there's scriptural ev- evidence for them um, in the Pali texts. So they helped the Buddha himself when he was uh, repelling evil spirits.
0: How does the Burmese government feel about this sort of, uh, this sort of addendum to Buddhism?
4: I don't think it particularly minds uh, much today, but certainly during the the days of uh, the rule of General Ne Win, who uh, was a dictator who ruled Burma um, from 1962 to 1988, they were they were very much looked down upon. General Ne Win was actually believed in their power, and he feared their power when he was around the wizards. Organized themselves into associations which drew lots of support from powerful, uh, wealthy, influential individuals. And so, not only did Ne Win fear their power, he also feared the support that they were accruing. So, he monitored and disbanded some of their associations, and he also banned their publications and attempted to scrub all references of uh, wizards from. Uh, films, magazines, books, etc.
0: So, as the country has democratized, the, the, the so-called wizards have, have come out of the shadows after being marginalized. How do they fit into society now?
4: Well, wizards today have really come out of the shadows from the days of ne rule. With the political reforms uh, that the country began embarking on in the early 2010s, the censorship board was abolished in 2012, and this led to an explosion of publications about wizards and a real kind of mainstreaming um, of their of their craft. Um, you now find young wizards uh, explaining their their tradecraft on YouTube who attract hundreds of thousands of views.
0: Charlie, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you Jason.
0: all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you back here on Monday.